Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. The ancient Greek aphorism, know thyself, is intimately connected to self-awareness and being in charge of our own thoughts and personality. I have always found the travel inward into our inner world at least as important as the outward travel physically exploring the world. There is power in knowing our own mind. And my guest today is a visionary and innovator with regard to the power and potential of the mind. Ariel Garten is a neuroscientist and entrepreneur whose driving purpose is to empower and help others overcome mental obstacles in order to live healthy, happy lives and reach their maximum potential. Ariel is a co-founder of Interaxon, the makers of Muse, the brain-sensing headband. Muse is the award-winning wearable technology that assists and trains meditation and mindfulness. Before founding Interaxon, Ariel was not only trained as a neuroscientist and psychotherapist, but also started her own international clothing line while she worked in labs researching Parkinson's disease and hippocampal neurogenesis. It was her unique ability to blend science with art that was integral to the design of Muse and to Interaxon's unique approach to brain sensing technology. Her team's technology has been featured in over 1,000 media pieces and also was the feature showcase at not only the 2018 G7 Summit, but also at the Vancouver 2010 Olympics, where they set up an installation that allowed over 7,000 people to control the lights on the CN Tower, Canadian Parliament buildings, and Niagara Falls with their brains from across the country. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Ariel, wonderful to have you here on the Superhumanized podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Ariane, it is my pleasure to be here. Hello, hello. <laughs> Something that I've been thinking about preparing for this interview with you, and I was really excited about it because you have expertise and experience in so many different areas, and especially with regard to technology, is that today we see a lot of opportunities and also challenges with technology and how it impacts our culture. Now, if we look at the challenges in your perception, what is the meta crisis of technology that we're experiencing now and how can we alleviate it? Ooh, there are multiple meta crises mm -hmm. of technology. The obvious one that everybody always talks about is the crisis of distraction, that these devices pull us away from our lives. But I think there's a few other points that people don't consider as deeply, and that is the dehumanization, that we believe technology is there to save us in some way, and that technology is so great. And we really forget that technology is supposed to be there in service of the human. And as soon as it stops being in service of the human, we should stop using it. 
And then, of course, there is the uh, monetization aspect of technology, that technology can be used to merely find another way to use you as a kind of currency, the currency of your attention, the currency of your clicks, the currency of your eyeballs. So there are multiple ways that technology has become a, a negative force culturally. On the other hand, there are also many ways that technology has become an extraordinarily positive force. We're communicating now over the airwaves, over the Wi-Fi, over the internet, over the world to one another. I'm wearing a pair of glasses. This was early technology that allows me to see. I've had laser eye surgery that allows me to see even better. There's infinite ways in which technology has made our lives much easier and human connection much greater. Mm. And I think the question of how do we alleviate these uh, burdens of technology come down to continually asking the question, is this technology at this moment serving me as a human and elevating my human experience, or is it diminishing it? And every time it diminishes it to say, nope, no, thank you. And every time it serves it to recognize it. Absolutely. And these are profound questions that when we sit with ourselves in stillness, we can find an answer to once we stop giving into all the distractions and to be really honest to ourselves, because sometimes certain short-lived feelings uh, that certain things that make us feel good are actually just an addiction, like the likes that I get on a post feeling seen when I may actually not be really seen as I can be in a face-to-face conversation, even like right now, you know, facilitated via technology, but being in a space where we can actually see each other and communicate with each other and also possibly help tune to each other and ourselves. Now, that being said, and I couldn't agree more with what you said, technology also has can be such a force of positivity and facilitating good positive change. How does technology actually help us to tune into ourselves? So we make a device called Muse, Mm -hmm. which is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. And it uses technology to help you actually get back in touch with yourself in a number of important ways. So we all know that meditation is good for you. You sit there and you go into this place of deep reflection, of contemplation, of being in the moment and the here and the now. But for a lot of people, meditation is very difficult to do because we are so distractible, because we're so used to sitting down and then getting up immediately and putting our attention on something and then having it attracted to something else. And so that causes us to feel like meditation is very difficult. And so we created Muse to help solve that problem. Muse gives you real-time feedback on your meditation to help when you're doing it right and to reinforce you to maintain the state of meditation. Technology is not always a force of bad. Technology can actually be something that helps us see more deeply into ourselves or helps support practices that are helpful. Telescopes help you see the stars. Mirrors help you see yourself reflected back in it. And when you can use technology, even in places like a meditation practice, you can have reinforced the positive capabilities of sitting, of being with, of sitting in the moment, of observing the self and more. Absolutely. I could not um, 
imagine a life for myself personally without technology, especially because it has elevated my life in so many ways, whether it's wearable technology that helps me keep track of my state of health and actually enhance certain practices, whether it is meditation, uh, whether it's communication, being able to be in touch with friends that are literally the other end of the world. So for me, the way I try to use technology in my daily life, I think the material majority of the time, it actually really is a force for good. And talking about Muse, uh, for those listeners who have not experienced this amazing headband yet, how does it exactly work? And what type of meditation is it best suited for? So Muse is actually an amazing tool that teaches you multiple different forms of meditation. Muse is a slim little headband with EEG sensors that track your state of focused attention meditation. So when you sit down to meditate, what happens in the practice is you sit down, you focus your attention on your breath. Eventually your mind will wander away from your breath. You notice that it wanders and then you bring your attention back. But for a lot of people, it's difficult to know exactly what to do and to exactly know the state of focused attention to notice when your mind has wandered. So Muse helps you do that by translating your attention into a soundscape. So when you sit and focus your attention on your breath, you hear sounds that are quiet and peaceful. When your mind wanders away onto a thought, you hear the sounds get louder, which is your cue that your mind is wandering. When you then bring your attention back to your breath, the sound quiets again. So it's this very simple interface that allows you to really hear the quality of your mind, whether it's wandering or whether it's quiet. Muse also has sensors for the heart the breath and the body. So you can do a heart meditation where you're actually listening to the beating of your heart, like the beating of a drum and it tunes your interoception, your ability to sensitively understand your internal state. There's stillness meditation that helps you find stillness and hear when your body is moving and shifting and then different forms of breathing practices where it tracks your breath and it teaches you box breathing, um, anxiety, breathing, long exhales, et cetera, to really help you use your breath as a tool to shift your state. I think it's such a beautiful and brilliant technology that truly helps us to know ourselves better. And if you look at the ancient Greek aphorism, know thyself, which is intimately connected to self-awareness and being in charge of our own thoughts, our mind, our personality. I've always found that traveling inward into our inner world is at least as important as the outward travel of physically exploring the world. There is real power in knowing our mind. You are a neuroscientist. Where does your fascination, what's inside our head come from? Ah, so what's inside our head to me is the most fascinating question out there. I love to travel the world and see what's going on outside, but I was always incredibly curious about how it is that our experience of self is created by this brain, how you can have a brain that really is just a bunch of chemicals moving along a concentration gradient. And from that signaling along a concentration gradient, you're able to see a color, feel a texture, recognize your mom's face and have an emotional experience, have complex thought, think about the organ that's doing the thinking. To me, this is utterly fascinating. My fascination with it came from multiple different angles. I grew up in a household that was filled with art. And so art is a way of seeing the world. 
in a way of showing you how to see the world differently. And then I was trained as a scientist, which is another way of seeing the world, a very different way of seeing the world, which is much more dogmatic and seeks to understand its processes. Combining the two, I couldn't think of anything more exciting than trying to understand the mind and the self. And for people who have done uh, or are in the process, because it's a never-ending journey, I find at least for myself, to learn about themselves, to know themselves, they already may be acquainted with their own definition of the why. But in your mind, why is it so important to know ourselves? So I want to backtrack for a moment and point out that knowing yourself is really hard. And it can be really scary. And that question of sitting with yourself and sitting with your thoughts can be quite intimidating because most of us are afraid of finding parts of ourselves that we may not like. And so when we take that question of know thyself and rather than say, you have to go and know yourself and we put it into the context of meditation, in meditation, we learn how to know ourselves without judgment. Mm-hmm. Because most of us get really caught up in knowing ourselves, then judging ourselves, then feeling shame for who we believe we might be, and then running away from the entire process. And so it can seem really overwhelming or intimidating. But when you move into the act of knowing yourself simply as a place of non-judgment, a place of information, a place of expansion and exploration, and a place that allows you to then have a better handle on your reactions and your, you know, your deeper intentions, then you can live a life that is far more harmonious, far more honest, uh, and far more productive. Because many of us, we do things like get in front of a project that we're supposed to be doing and feel an anxiety that we feel like we may not do well enough. And then we get pushed over to the fridge because it's much easier to eat something than it is to confront the anxiety of doing something you think you might fail at. And then you procrastinate for a long time and then it's really stressful. And then you stress out the people in your life and, 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 and. If at the beginning of that process, you understood that, hey, I tend to always feel anxiety when I have a big project And anxiety is just a sensation. It rises and it falls. And it's telling me that I think I need to do a really good job. And then I have a whole bunch of self-judgment around that. And what the best I can do is the best that I can do. I'm just going to sit down and do this and move aside that judgment. Then the whole process becomes very easy. Not easy, but much simpler. You can sit down, you can do your work, you can understand the blocks that get in your way. You can not stress out the people around you. And you can probably do much better, much more productive, much more creative work when you understand your own triggers and you understand the crap that you create for yourself in your own mind and body. All of it, beautiful crap, human crap, but just the process of being human. When you can look at it and laugh at it and enjoy it and just know that's you and then find ways to work around it, life becomes so much easier and so much more fulfilling. Yes, indeed it does. And it resonates so much with the specific example you right now picked with anxiety. Pretty much all my life, what I remember, I've always been dealing with anxiety. I've been able to now heal some of the root causes of it so much better now than it was years ago. But especially the realization, once you sit with it and just, yeah, just basically sit with it and hold this feeling and spend some time with it. And when you get into that space where of non-judgment, you actually realize that the thing that triggers you or the anxiety itself is so much more stressful than 
any project once you actually get into the project do the best that you can it's actually not that stressful it's the anxiety that makes it so stressful and it's fascinating how with the power of our mind we can alleviate so many of these triggers and so many of these conditions it's really We tend to be afraid of the anxiety more than anything. So we can substitute the words anxiety for stress, fear. And really, when we go into any situation where that anxiety starts to rise, the fear starts to rise, what happens is we pull away because we don't want to feel the fear. Mm -hmm. So you you confront the document that you're about to write, the project you're about to do, the work of art that you're about to make. And you feel this rise of anxiety because there may be judgment or perfectionism or frustration or any of the things that come around it. The anxiety then pulls you away from doing it because you're afraid to feel that anxiety because that anxiety is so stressful. You're like, I just want that anxiety to stop. And so you pull away from the project. However, when you can just see it as anxiety, it's just fear. It doesn't have to have any meaning. It doesn't have to rule me. It's just a sensation that rises and that can also fall. Then you can just move forward and do the thing. The classic phrase, all there is to fear is fear itself, is so true because it's in those moments of fear that what you're afraid of is not the thing that you have to do. It is the feeling of fear. You're afraid of feeling that fear. Feeling the fear is so uncomfortable, you just pull away. Mm-hmm. Yet when you can step through the fear, on the other side of fear is always freedom. Beautiful. Yes. And speaking about these states that arise in us, can arise in us, and how we try to avoid them, I want to circle back to Muse. And I know that therapists and other health professionals are using Muse to help their clients, their patients. How does Muse, how is Muse applicable, for example, with regard to alleviating, working with, becoming more aware of anxiety? Sure. Yeah, there are thousands of clinicians that use Muse with their clients. There's probably over 400,000 people in the world who've used Muse to start or enhance their meditation practice. And Muse helps you deal with that anxiety is by allowing you to sit with it. Now that might sound weird or scary, but what you're really doing is you're learning to just be in the moment and observe your experience. So most of us, when we sit there and we get a little bit of fear or a scary thought or something uncomfortable, we just get up and we run away. And we never have the opportunity to actually get to the other side of it. But with muse and meditation practice, what you do is you sit there, a scary thought or a feeling or an itch or a discomfort rises. And instead of running away from it, you just keep sitting Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you just let your mind go away from that thought. Just come back to the present moment, away from that thought, back to the present moment. And when you do that, the fear dissipates. And when you do that, you realize, hey, I didn't need to run away from this. If I just sit here, it actually just goes away on its own. If I don't engage in the story, if I don't make more drama around this fear, if I don't say, oh no, let's pick a simple example. You're in traffic. You're late for a meeting. You're sitting in traffic. And then the fear rises and you go, oh no, I'm going to be late for this meeting. And then the mind starts spiraling. Then my boss is going to be upset and then everybody's going to judge me. And then I'm going to be sweaty because I'm late and upset and, 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 and. If you simply at the beginning would go, oh, this is traffic. You can feel the feeling of it. You can know that it sucks. And then rather than engaging in that story and perpetuating it, say, yep, this is what's happening. 
let's put on a podcast and move my mind elsewhere to make use of this time rather than being anxious about something I can't change. All of a sudden, all that stress goes out the window when you no longer make dramatic stories about it, when you no, no longer get caught up in it, when you no longer allow that fear to overtake you and defeat it. So meditation is an extraordinary practice to help you move your mind out of anxious and stressful thoughts and also help you manage the sensations that come along with it that tend to suck us in and tend to make it worse. And I also think it's such a powerful experience to actually live through these moments where you realize I can sit with whatever ails me. And it, yes, it arises, but it also dissipates again. And that I don't need to go down that rabbit hole of worsening, let's stick with anxiety and the thoughts that accompany it and make it even more acute. I don't necessarily need to take anything that I normally may use to take off the edge, whatever that may be, cigarette, a drink of alcohol, or whatever we may use to just make us feel better in that moment. And I certainly have been there. I understand that. But once you start experiencing that, you can move through this. It's very powerful. And the more we practice that, the more it anchors. I'm, I want to know more about, because I know you guys at Muse, you're constantly researching, you're constantly going deeper into this subject, subject matter that is your area of expertise, the science, this technology. What are the kinds of topics, issues, or questions that you're currently approaching Sure. So we recently created an entire program around meditation for pain. And that is so aligned with the kind of descriptions we've been talking about fear and anxiety, because what tends to happen in the pain cycle is you have both the physical sensation of pain, and then you have all the thoughts and feelings around that pain. So the physical sensation of pain is called primary pain. The thoughts and feelings around it are secondary pain. Mm -hmm. And often the secondary pain is much worse than the primary pain. So you might have a little, you have a sore in your back and then you say, oh no, this feels so terrible. I feel terrible. I won't be able to do these things. And it spirals. And that over time creates something called a pain cycle where mm -hmm. that pain can become really embedded embedded and linked to these thoughts in a way that constantly pulls up the pain when you have the thoughts. So we created this beautiful program that actually teaches you to use mindfulness for pain. Another area that's really of interest for us now is sleep and anxiety and sleep are deeply linked. Many people not just have difficulty sleeping, but then have the anxiety around not sleeping. So when you wake up at two in the morning and you look over at your alarm clock and you say it's two in the morning, if you never looked at your alarm clock, if you just woke up and just let yourself go back to bed, it would be fine. But yeah. many of us look at our alarm clock. We see that it's two in the morning. The spike of fear comes. Oh no, I'm up at two. I'm going to be up all night. I'm going to be uh, terrible tomorrow. This is going to be awful. I don't want another night like this. And then that fear and anxiety keeps you up at night. So we created something called the digital sleeping pill, which actually tracks your brain during sleep and gives you beautiful interventions to help you fall back asleep easily without re-engaging these cycles. Can you give us an example of that? This sounds really fascinating. Sure. So we have a new device called Muse 2 yeah. and it's something, sorry, Muse S. 
going to start that again. We have a new device called Muse S, and it's something that you actually wear during sleep. It's quite comfy, and it tracks your brain and sleep cycles actually almost as effectively as a sleep lab. So it's a sleep lab in your own bed. And what we're able to do is see your brain state of wakefulness. And as you're falling asleep, change the content that you're listening to help you fall asleep faster. So you might be listening to a sleep story or a beautiful guided meditation or a nature soundtrack. And as you do that, as you start to transition from wakefulness into sleep, the audio will shift and change to actually cue your brain into sleep. And then once you're asleep, if you wake up again in the night, the band wakes up with you and brings back in the same audio experience that helped you fall asleep the first time and guides you back into sleep really effectively and beautifully. And a recent study demonstrated that uh, using this for six weeks leads to a 20% improvement in sleep quality. Wow. I was just about to ask about the numbers. That's fantastic. What I found so find so fascinating about you, Ariel, is that your own life journey spans art, science, and business. And I would really love for you to, maybe in a nutshell, share a little bit of your background with the audience for those who may not know much about you. Sure. So I started really with an entrepreneurial family. My mom was an artist and my dad was an entrepreneur. So I learned from a young age, the value of doing things on your own for the world, rather than, you know, working for somebody else or working for a company. And for my mother, I could see that she would just imagine something then she'd be able to create this huge, beautiful work of art, like from something you can create from nothing, you can create something beautiful. So I, even in high school, had a job in a research lab. At that point, it was 1998. I was had a small position working with embryonic stem cells and knockout mice as like a student. It was extraordinary. And at the same time, I pursued art and I had a clothing line that I started to sell to stores in Toronto where I lived. And so from this very young age, I both had a sort of a scientific understanding of the world and a entrepreneurial spirit to take what I imagined in my head and make it real. Mm -hmm. I went to school and was trained as a neuroscientist along the way, continued to do an art practice. And then I started working with Dr. Steve Mann. He's the inventor of the wearable computer. He's basically like the guy that made Google Glass before Google did. And in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, we started to work with an early brain computer interface system, a BCI, to create experiences that let you see what was going on in your own mind. And then several years later, I went back to that project and said, hey, this is amazing. We can take a single electrode and by placing it on your forehead, let you actually understand what's going on in your own mind in simple ways. We can make musical interface from it. We can we can actually reflect your feeling in lights just in very basic ways. Like we can't see your thoughts or anything. It's just very simple shifts in state that you can have reflected back to you. And so I took that and got together with my co-founders, Chris Amini and Trevor Coleman, and the three of us formed a company that eventually became Muse. Mm -hmm. And by 2014, the first Muse came out in the market as a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. And since then, Muse has been used by hundreds of thousands of people and also thousands and thousands of researchers. There's over 200 published papers using Muse in a variety of different ways, demonstrating its efficacy for different conditions, its ability to track track human state in, in quite a number of ways. And so it's been amazing. 
Mm, and yours is such a beautiful story about not only growth and being a visionary and creating something that's com a complete game changer. It's also about healing the individual and the collective, which I think is so needed and so important now. I also love what I learned about your path as a, an entrepreneur, and you regularly speak about female empowerment and entrepreneurship. What has changed from the time where you were actually raising funds and building your company And now, and what do you feel are the things that still need to change and help? So I became the CEO of Muse in probably 2009. And it is a very different world now than it was then. So when I first started as a female founder, people would say, oh my God, you're the CEO of a tech company and you're a woman. Like, tell us about that. That's amazing. And at that point, I'd get annoyed. I'm like, I'm just... I'm a CEO. Like, what does it matter that I'm a woman? How, why are you making me different? Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I realized that you needed to make it different. You need to be able to point to great examples of women in tech, because at that point there weren't any, I would be invited to a conference of the 50 greatest mind, young minds in technology. And there'd be literally two women, me and one other person and 48 men. And these days, there is an incredible shift towards supporting women in technology, towards creating those mentors, towards creating funds to fund women specifically. I went out and I raised about $18 million from venture capital myself, standing there as a little woman from Toronto, raising funds. And it was it was challenging. And I stepped down in my role as the CEO when I gave birth to my son. And at that point, I said, There's no way that I could imagine myself raising money pregnant. I couldn't imagine myself standing in front of a VC in Silicon Valley at eight months pregnant and having them take me seriously or give me cash. Mm -hmm. And now, fast forward to 2022, I just had another baby six weeks ago and was yet again raising another round of capital and did it via Zoom. So you couldn't see that I had a tummy <laughs> below the camera. And literally at eight months pregnant was standing, standing or sitting in this case in front of VCs, raising millions and millions of dollars successfully while pregnant. And the narrative around that has changed drastically. It's no longer, oh no, it's a woman who's pregnant, better not give her money. She's probably not going to be able to follow through on it to me literally texting with VCs as I was in labor several weeks earlier, <laughs> canceling my meetings saying, Hey, got to be out for a little while. Um, somebody else is going to take over and getting an extraordinary amount of support and respect. So very different scenario than we're in, that we're in now. And it is a incredible time to be a woman in tech, just with the amount of funding and support and enthusiasm around uplifting women and bringing them into these positions. It is a huge opportunity. I feel the same way. And I think it's just so wonderful what you shared with us about raising millions of dollars, eight months pregnant, because if anyone is going to make it happen, it's a pregnant woman, a woman who's going to bring new life into this world. The stakes could not be higher. Women and women with children are definitely going to make it happen. Also women without, I myself don't have children, but so I think that's fantastic. What would you like to share with female creators who are just up and coming or female leaders and entrepreneurs? Is there something you'd really like to impart on them? Absolutely. That you are 
amazing, capable, phenomenal human beings who can do it. And as women, we can tend to have narratives in our head of, oh, no, we're not good enough. We don't have a right to be here. We can statistically have greater anxiety than men. However, all of that is generally just a false narrative. Mm-hmm. All of that is generally just thoughts that come into your head that get reinforced with anxious sensations, which create more thoughts, and they're not actually reality. Mm-hmm. Every time your mind sends, says to you, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't know if I should be here. Oh, I don't know if I look good enough, if I'm wearing the right thing. All of that is just busy chatter in the mind. It's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. So don't get caught up in it. Move that to the side. You can feel the sensations of anxiety rise and then fall and then step to the other side. Because in reality, you can do it. You are capable. And those are basic truths, no matter what else your brain might be telling you. Yes. And how did you get through the times when people told you, ah, no way, it's not possible. You know what you're trying to manifest that just won't work. So when you would get a no, how would you, how did you handle that? in the past? So in two different ways. In one way, my inner critic was actually very quiet. So I didn't have a lot of voices in my own head telling me, oh, this won't work. Oh, this won't happen. So if somebody said that, it was not that hard to brush off. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you also have to listen to, is this just a critic um, or is there meaningful information here? Because there are times when I'd go into, for example, a BC meeting and they would say no. And then what I wanted to know was why okay, you said no, I accept that. Why? What was it? What was the piece that I was telling you that didn't jive? What part of the presentation didn't work? And to take that information and to improve. So rather than responding with judgment or frustration or upsetness, just take it all as information and then use that information to grow and flourish whatever you're doing. Mm. And then there's one other part of it. So in giving birth, I learned an important lesson gave birth without an epidural. Meditation was amazing. I felt very little pain. What I learned in our meditation pain course was actually very applicable to, to labor. And it was didn't feel pain. It was just sensation until right at the end when I had to push the baby through. And the doctor was like, okay, time to push. And I was like, oh, no, my body's not ready. And she's like, look, your body's ready. I can see the head of the baby. Come on, push. And I was like, but I'm afraid it's going to hurt. And she said, the only way it's going to stop hurting is when you get the baby to the other side. So just do it. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay. I got to do this. It doesn't matter if there's pain there, there will be, that's fine. It'll come, it'll go. And then I'll be on the other side and it'll be wonderful. And so it was a few pushes and you're through the pain and you have all of the reward that stands on the other side of it. Beautiful. There's another thing that you stand for that I think is just so beautiful and powerful, which is that the power of our mind to change the world inside us also gives us the power to change the world outside us. When we calm down the wars inside us, the wars outside us may follow and will make this world a more beautiful place. That resonated deeply with me. And in your mind and your knowledge, because you're very much deeply into this field, what is the future of brain sensing technologies? How you think can they help us heal the wars that we have inside us and maybe also the wars outside? 
Oh, amazing. So the wars inside us tend to be caused by thoughts that are not true, by traumas that haven't been healed, by emotions that overwhelm us. And they lead to feelings of scarcity, of fear, of anxiety, which cause us to shut down, close, and tend to disconnect from the other. And so when you use practices like meditation to help you understand those internal dialogues, to quiet the disconnects, they... To quiet the word I'm thinking of, basically to quiet all of the thoughts that don't serve you inside your own brain, to quiet the fear thinking, to quiet the anxiety, to quiet the inner critic. When you use technologies like meditation to do that, all of a sudden it becomes much easier to engage in the world in a graceful and peaceful way. You don't feel like you need to protect yourself or defend yourself or push away the other in different ways. And I truly believed that if everyone in the world meditated, we would have a much better, more equitable world. We wouldn't have people invading others based on false stories, very false stories. We wouldn't have people wanting to overtake more territory and and kill one another senselessly to do it. It sounds like it is a naive view, but really if if people could truly shut down their egos and see the world in a more holistic sense, we would be in a much, much better place. Yes, that also resonates very deeply, dear Ariel. Thank you for what you put forth in this world, which is helping so many people to find back to their inner peace. I think this is something we're born with and then the world enters our psyche, our minds, and messes a lot up. Meditation aside, which I know is a very important and profound practice in your personal life, and of course, also your business, your creation by Amuse, which you put forth, are there any other practices that you would be willing to share with us that have enriched, enhanced your life mentally, physically, or spiritually? Absolutely. One practice that I absolutely love is looking at everybody with love. Mm. So the moment you walk down the street and you look at the people who are walking towards you, the strangers with love, and you recognize that you're able to love another human being who's just a stranger, just because they're human, everything shifts. When I look at my the people that I work with, my coworkers or employees with love, before I write an email, everything shifts. Mm. When I look at the person across Zoom with love, everything shifts. So that's just one practice that is very, can sound intimidating, but when you start doing it, it's actually quite easy to do so long as you remember to do it and can really change not just your state, but the way that you interact with the world. Beautiful. Absolutely. And I've always believed that when we see the best in others, we may just bring it forth. And of course, seeing with love is seeing the best and honoring the best in each other. Ariel, thank you so much for making time for us today. And uh, yeah, just very grateful to learn from you and for you sharing your wisdom with us. It was my joy and pleasure. Thank you so much. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 